This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that would definitely survive eight hours of intense questioning as long as there were a decent amount of breaks and all our WhatsApps were lost. I'm Alex Andreu. On Tuesday's show, Rishi Sunak faces his own MPs, desperate to unite them in the face of significant rumblings over the Rwanda plan. We're taking a look at all the ways it could go wrong and try to figure out exactly how it will. And over at the COVID inquiry, it's squeaky bum time, as he is subjected to a sort of six-hour PMQs with proper follow-up questions and supporting slides. Now let's meet the panel. She'll be joining me and Dorian at our sold-out show at the Comedy Store on Wednesday. <laughs> Roz Taylor is the host of Jam Tomorrow and author of The Future of Trust. It's out in February, so you'll have to pre-order it and put an IOU in your loved one's stocking for Christmas. Hello. Roz. Hello, yes, it's eight ninety nine, and you can get it from foils.co.uk. Marvellous. Um, Roz, Sunday was the final of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Nigel Farage came third. Um, viewing figures were 6.5 million, down 3.6 million on average from last year's finale, which was watched by an average of 10.1 million. Why did the silent majority, about which we keep being told, fail to vote for or even silently watch their idol? Well, I can't say exactly because I didn't watch it. Um, <laughs> so this is this is fairly... I think you're in good company, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I, I just don't have the time to stare at jungle and, and minor celebs kind of thrashing their way through it and look at insects. It's just, you know, it's it's too much like hard work. Um, but I don't think many either celebrity viewers are very interested in politics, to be honest. And I think some of them actively resent it when politicians are put on there, like Matt Hancock and Nigel Farage. And, you know, people like uh, us say... Well, what does this tell us about this guy's popularity? Is he fit to run a country um, if he survives in the jungle? I think they know very well, just as we do, that being in the jungle and surviving perhaps a worm in your bra or something is is not a, a sign that you are capable of uh, running a country uh, or any kind of you know endorsement of your views. So I don't think that they mix up the two. Yeah, but uh, but I I was under the impression, although I didn't watch it either, but from watching people's reaction on social media, I was under the impression that there was a hope he might do better than that. There seemed to be a big sort of campaign to mobilise people to vote for him. So I think they always, and I'm celeb, they like to have somebody who is not uh, a kind of influencer slash soap star type of celeb. You know, mm. someone who has allegedly more heft because they are perhaps a politician. <laughs> it's the same with Strictly, you know, when you get Ed Balls or whoever on it. Yeah, yeah. It's the same pattern. And it just happened to be Farage this year. And, you know, I think 1.5 million is a ludicrous amount of money to pay Nigel Farage to appear on a television programme. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm actually, I don't watch Strictly either, to be honest, but I consider it more of a test in that it actually involves learning a real skill as opposed mm. to a sort of, you know, a prolonged Dora the Explorer racist special um, that you just participate in. But what do I know? Seth Tevo is a journalist, historian and wearer of the most extraordinary clothes. You're missing out by not watching this on YouTube. He's all in sort of winter cricket gear today, yeah, I would it's say. It's warm. Hello, Seth. <laughs> Good to see you. Tory peer Michelle Moan, in contrast, hasn't exactly been silent about her innocence in the PPE scandal, but now she's taken it to another level. A new docu documentary purports to tell the real story behind the millions of pounds allocated to her company, <coughs> PPE MedPro. But the hour-long special has an almost M. Night Shyamalan-esque twist at the end. The whole thing was funded and produced by... 
PPE Med Pro. <laughs> Are you convinced of her innocence now, Seth, if you weren't already? Well, we haven't heard from Michelle Moon until now, and she's had a right to reply, and this is it. And if she's to be believed, it's been the biggest conspiracy ever. The Department of Health and assorted tax inspectors have been collaborating with the National Crime Agency to bung over various things, and, and they, they have a, a, a tape that suggests that, um, well, they, they tell us that a deeply inappropriate suggestion of settle with us for a large cash sum out of court. Uh, and if it's large enough, then we'll make all of these things go away. Unfortunately, they couldn't get that on tape. So they then had a follow-up conversation, which, I mean, it might bear that out or it might not. But um, it... What do you mean? <laughs> so, they, so they thought, they, they, they say they have a recorded conversation that they didn't have. They, they do they have a recorded them. conversation discussing whether they might like to settle out of court on this. Uh, which but, is not very unusual. No, given that the case. government is currently suing them to try and get hundreds of millions of pounds worth of PPE payments back. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's possible that she's the most wronged woman since Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. Mm. However, um, <laughs> I think most other people might have a slightly more sceptical attitude to this. I mean, she does say that she regrets lying to the press, or rather regrets instructing her lawyers to lie on her behalf in saying that she had nothing to do with this company because she was just following legal advice at the time, which is very convenient because, of course, mm. it's privileged, so we can't actually see what this legal advice uh, was or, or if it exists even. Maybe she recorded it. And before we start, just a quick reminder that the last date to order merchandise from podmarket.co.uk, our online store, is this Wednesday, the 13th of December. Same date for the special Patreon store too. So if you want a mug for your Suella Braverman-loving auntie, saying tofu-eating wokerati, or a mug for yourself saying left-wing economic elite, then you'd better order quickly at podmarket.co.uk. .co.uk First this week, following the Supreme Court's smackdown of the government's Rwanda plan, Rishi Sunak announced his attempt to push through primary legislation in the Commons which will declare Rwanda safe and close down all but the most unlikely avenues for appeal. That doesn't sound very fair. That vote is due on Tuesday evening. Tomorrow, as we record, Sunak's insisting that it won't be viewed as a vote of confidence in his leadership, but his bosom buddy Robert Jenrick last week and his former boss Suella Braverman are still agitating from the sidelines. Sunak's ultimatum to his MPs is unite or die, but it seems like many of them are convinced that Sunak's current electoral strategy would better be described as unite and die. Ros, the Star Chamber of right-wing backbenchers gave its view on Sunak's imaginatively named Safety of Rwanda bill. What did it say? Well, it was certainly interesting to hear from Marc Francois again. Some of us <laughs> wondered whether he would have another role to play in public life, but uh, we now have found out. He said that it was a partial and incomplete solution. It was vulnerable to challenges and it needs amending. So yeah, he doesn't he doesn't like it. Basically, what he wants to happen is for the government to pull the bill. Now, this is convenient for this group of right-wing backbenchers because it basically says to Sunak, we don't want to topple you right now. We don't want to topple you before Christmas and have a nasty election in January and February. We want to drag this out and keep on fighting over it as long as we possibly can and, you know, extend our influence for as long as we possibly can. Mm. Um, but we, we won't go to the brink now and actually vote against you. Right. It's brinkmanship. Yeah. They they have essentially told him that he needs to withdraw the bill and rework it and yes, represent it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, I, I think one thing that became very clear to me watching that uh, press event was how much Mark Francois has missed being on telly. Mm. <laughs> was was it as clear to you as it was to me? He was just so, so puffed up to be, uh, you know, on the vanguard again, being a Spartan. Um, Make the most of it, Mark. Yes. <laughs> what are the different possible outcomes and, and what can government do to make its preferred outcome more likely, as it were. There are no good outcomes here. I mean, okay. this is all just about kicking the fight down the road, which is the best possible outcome as far as the government is concerned, really. 
I mean, the government's own legal advice is that completely blocking appeals, which is what Marc Francois and his friends want to do, would be in breach of international law. And if they did that, they would have an even bigger you know, rebellion because the one nation wing of the party would, mm. would rebel then. So the possibilities are that the government pulls the vote completely for the moment and re, you know, decides to rewrite it over Christmas and brings it back in January. The government... Um, <laughs> Some very unhappy civil servant. Yeah. The government amends uh, the, the bill um, before tomorrow. That will also be difficult because we know that it's gone as far as it possibly can without Rwanda itself uh, being unhappy with the bill. Um, the other possibility is that the government holds the vote and loses it obviously a bad outcome but not necessarily I think existential for Rishi Sunak just now for the reasons I mentioned earlier because no one really wants an election right now mm. and it doesn't it isn't necessarily going to lead to a vote of no confidence there will be rumblings and there will be the usual suspects but I don't think at this moment it would and then there's the possibility the government holds a vote and wins it but even if it does that there will be amendments in the new year um, and then there will be a big fight with the House of Lords Hands up who had on their Brexit bingo card that Rwanda will, would end up our human rights conscience. Well, the country where uh, Kagame was um, re-elected with 99% of the vote, I believe, mm. in 2017. They love him. I don't know why you refuse to believe that. <laughs> Seth, having told his party to unite or die behind his bill, Sunak then backpedalled on this, being a confidence issue, even made it clear he would not be withdrawing the whip. Uh, from rebels. So, I mean, can it become a de facto confidence vote in any case if he ends up losing it? Um, I, mean, I think it's worth mentioning that the unite or die phrase birds very badly because the last Tory leader who told their party that was Ian Duncan Smith two weeks before they ousted him. So <laughs> it's what you say when you're in the last chance saloon. <laughs> but... Um, they can make more or less anything they like a confidence issue if they want to declare it as such. But what's amazing is just how bad at politics these people are and how short their memories are. Literally the last prime minister this country had was ousted after she was very confused over, is it a confidence issue? Isn't it a confidence issue? Our own government doesn't know. Our whips don't know. Our MPs don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's how you get pandemonium. This is literally what happened 14 months ago. Yes, because it happened to trust, didn't it? That, that was the night that caused her resignation the next day. That was yes. literally what went on. The government. Who was the whip? Uh, some oh, I... some wretched woman that ended up taking the, the blame. Mem memorably, the the chief whip and deputy chief whip resigned with a um, I, what was it? The f bomb of I I don't care anymore. <laughs> I'm giving up. But that's what happened. They they quit because. MPs had been told it was a confidence issue, it was a mass rebellion that was going on, um, and then some MPs were told it's no longer a confidence issue, and others weren't. <laughs> Apparently, the pasta plotters have been meeting um, in an Italian restaurant um, with the aim, I mean, how fucking provincial can you get, well, you know? Why are anyway, these people always obsessed with food? I mean, I, it was I a have pork no pie idea. plot before. I know, now it's I know. and pizza. Pasta. There yep. was a pizza yeah. plotters. Um, so they've been meeting with the aim to crash, and that's a quote, Sunak's administration. Although he, hilariously, one admits they don't know precisely how. <laughs> Sounds about uh, right. Yeah, it's, it's sort of, we're in <laughs> underpants gnome territory, you know, collect underpants, question mark, profit. Um, so... And what they want ultimately is to install the dream ticket, mm -hmm. the stress dream ticket, I would mm -hmm. say, of Johnson Farage. Is this really a possibility? No. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sure... Oh, that's a big prediction, Seth, <laughs> in the current climate. I'm, I'm sure the, these people are very earnest and very sincere in their belief of what they think should happen next. Mm. But this does sound like the ravings of people who have been having the same conversations in darkened corners for the last year irrespective of what's happened in between. Mm. Now, let's just put to one side the fact that Nigel Farage is not even a member of a Conservative Party, let alone a parliamentarian, so it would be very difficult to install him in the first place. Let's just imagine that problem doesn't exist. I mean, Johnson isn't either, I guess. <laughs> well, the, the Johnson's the problem for them, because, you know, the, the Standards Committee report has happened 
Parliament has voted on that. You know, suspension, was it 90 days? Um, oh, so he'd have record. to serve that, would he, if he came? Well, there's well a, I don't know, it's unprecedented, There's a very serious question about whether he could easily take his seat as an MP, even if one was given up for him by a willing stooge tomorrow. And even if the Tories actually got it, I mean, you could just about imagine him accepting a peerage like David Cameron, because that would be a very Boris Johnson thing to do. And try to be Prime Minister from the House of Lords, <laughs> which fly? you will tell me, of course, is not without <laughs> precedent, right? Indeed, there but, have been. But will it fly? No, come on. Yeah, really. Yeah. Mm. I, mean, I mean, the funniest scenario in my imagination is where they try to do that. And because people loathe them so much, they end up losing the safe seats that are given up for them to stand at a by-election, which is entirely possible. That right? happens. Like Farage historically has form for well, losing. Well, you're saying that he came third in "I'm a Celebrity." That's quite good for him. It is. It is quite good. Um, former immigration minister Robert Jenrick gave, I thought, a pretty incendiary interview on Sunday to Laura Kunzberg, in which he said that government must put, and I quote, the views of the British public above contested notions of international law, and MPs are not sent to Parliament to be concerned about our reputation on the gilded international circuit. I mean, this tallies with Braverman's Who Governs Britain. Ros, is there a legitimate case here that national sovereignty has been eroded too significantly by internationalist structures. Like, give me your best pitch for this. Well, yeah, it has been eroded. It's always going to be eroded. Um, it's it's the price you pay. The question is whether it's worth it to mm. when to sign up to this these international laws and international treaties and international rules of trading, for example. Um, do you want to compromise your sovereignty in order to do more trade with other countries? That was the quest, central question of Brexit in the end. And we decided that we wanted to do less trade with other countries uh, so that our sovereignty wouldn't be compromised. Uh I mean, some would argue that a country that can't tr trade is not effectively sovereign because it has limited ability to do what it wants. And it's certainly true that if you if you isolate yourself from international structures mm. on every level, then you are at a severe disadvantage, not just, of course, over trade, but when you would like countries to not to uh, invade you or on everything. It is it is cutting off your nose to spite your face. Splendid isolation has been tried and it didn't go well. It gives the illusion, the brief tantalising illusion of autonomy and power, but ultimately it's misleading. Yeah. Mm. It, it, do you know it's interesting? It is a full 28 years since I studied constitutional law. And I remember my very first lecture very, very, very clearly, which explained that there is such a thing as theoretical parliamentary sovereignty um, and practical parliamentary sovereignty, which, which is not quite as sovereign. And the example I remember the lecturer giving is Parliament could, in theory, legislate to outlaw umbrellas in Beijing. But would it have any um, ability to enforce that law in practice? Of course not. And I remember it being said that the European Convention of Human Rights provided the UK with a very useful workaround for not having a, a, a written constitution, not having a, a Supreme Court that, as in the States, sits above the uh, legislature and the executive when it comes to constitutional matters. Um, it provided with a nice workaround because you could basically entrench human rights legislation in a body over there, which meant they were out of reach of grabbing politicians. And I think it's very interesting that this is what is attempted to be undone here. Yeah, well, I mean, four umbrellas in Beijing read you know, human rights in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And trying to define those from a distance. I mean, yes. I mean, to say to legislate to say Rwanda is safe is a finding of fact, which belongs properly in mm. courts. Um, what about the UK's international reputation, Rose? We've had this conversation before. 
Is it a foregone conclusion that we would become a pariah? Or is it possible we would instead end up providing a sort of template for other governments? To be honest, and rather depressingly, I think it could go either way mm. at the moment because the tensions over migration in lots of countries are such that numerous countries are exploring, shall we say, different ways to deal with their migration problem as they as they see it. You know, we see Italy putting processing centres in Albania. We see both France and Australia at the moment are wrangling over their own migration bills, which Australia says it wants to cut the number of migrants coming there in half. And it's talking about legal, not, immig- not illegal immigration, not small boats in Australia. France wants to, you know, is, is trying to work out whether to put language requirements on people who want um, to, to, to stay in France, not just who want to become citizens. It is a massive deal at the moment. So mm. it may well be that in this particular sphere of migration, the international rules-based order breaks down. On the other hand, you know, we've, we've already, Britain has already pulled out of a big multilateral body because we wanted more sovereignty and that hasn't gone so well for us. And it may well be that uh, you know, countries do draw back from this and realise that cutting, you know, cutting off cooperation and, and uh, cooperation with other countries is not necessarily the way to go forward. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I struggle to see how it plays out logically, as it were, if if every country decides to do that, mm. because it does nothing to address the sheer mass of people looking to move from troubled regions. And so then it becomes a numbers game, really, when the you know countries begin to collapse like dominoes, essentially, because um, migrants Uh, especially refugees, will end up naturally in one country having to take all of the burden. And I don't know that that's a sustainable... I think it would reach us later, but it would reach us in possibly in a more catastrophic way. Um, Seth, there's been some confusion when it comes to the House of Lords' role in this. Are they only bound to sign off on things that were in the government's manifesto? Can you clarify that for Probably. us? Probably. A lot of this comes down to the Salisbury Convention. Yes. It might be worth actually going into The reason this came about was the Labour government of 1945 was the first ever Labour government to have a majority. In fact, they had a huge majority as it happened. Right. And you have this deadlock between a Commons that is overwhelmingly Labour and a Lords that's overwhelmingly Conservative. Bear in mind, until 2004, the House of Lords was uninterruptedly Conservative for several centuries. So mm. it was a bit of a novelty to have a sort of, you know, yeah. uh, and they, they'd had... Well, they were literally the aristocracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, as a result, the deadlock is broken when Lord Salisbury, Conservative leader in Lords, comes up with this agreement that we won't oppose in the Lords anything that was in your manifesto for which you have a mandate. And as a result, when governments get a little bit naughty later on in their term, saying, oh, we'll come up with an idea like this Rwanda scheme, the House of Lords says, well, actually, you don't have a democratic mandate for this, so we, mm. we can get to work on these sorts of things. So... It's a matter of opinion as to, you know, is this or isn't this covered? Because there was a sort of stop the boats thing in the Conservative. There wasn't, actually. No, I mean, there was a, a thing around cutting immigration massively and so forth. And then There question, wasn't even that, actually. What I was going there, to there, is was, a, there is a thing about taking control of the immigration process with a view to reducing numbers. Yeah, That's uh, all there and, is. And what I was going to say yeah. is that then even if you extrapolate that, in no way, shape or form is anything like the Rwanda scheme yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. then the question is, you know, at, at what stage does the Lords uh, kick off us? Ultimately, it is just the convention, though. You know, the, the rules are being broken all the time, unfortunately, by this government. Um, one of the things the government is threatening to do as a result is to use the Parliament Act I'm rather sceptical for a number of reasons, um, not least because it's actually too late in the parliamentary session. We're in the last parliamentary session yeah. of the parliament. Because, because the Parliament Act um, has quite fixed 
time limits yeah. that you they, there's time hoops you need to jump through and even if you started now they wouldn't get it through before the end of next year and the, the parliament act in its original form was a product of the previous deadlock between laws of the commons that had happened in the 1910s and then they amended it again in the 40s to try and say all right we'll let you mm. go through a, another parliamentary session but we are too late what this comes down to is the government really wants this policy to be enacted but can see no way of mm. it happening. Only to be foiled in the courts, most likely. Yeah. Ros, just to wrap up, would an election fought over the, the European Convention of Human Rights be a smart wedge issue? Or does it risk portraying the government as out of touch with more pressing concerns about the cost of living, economic recovery, the NHS, housing? Or can they link it successfully to those things? It would think? be absolutely crazy. I mean, mm. it really would. Uh, I mean, uh, two two reasons. I mean, it would be crazy like we were saying Brexit <laughs> referendum would be yeah, crazy. But there's still, I mean, or, Brexit was a referendum on a specific issue. Yeah. And people do not like single issue elections. They tend, you know, they think absolutely rightly that the point of a general election is to look at a government in the round and decide whether to keep it or whether to get rid of it. Mm. And people understand that very well, no matter how little you know about politics. That's, that's what you do yeah, at yeah. a general election. And to be told, oh, actually... This is a referendum on on the Rwanda Act. I think people would be extremely indignant and would see it for what it is, which is a distraction policy for, as you say, the hell hellish state of the of the state in the UK today mm -hmm. and the problems that we have with the NHS, with housing, with the cost of living. Um, and to be honest, yeah, I think most people are far more concerned on a day-to-day -day level with those. Now, that is not to say that illegal immigration isn't a salient issue, uh, and especially among a certain proportion of the electorate and the kind, you know, who would support reform. But it is not as important as the other stuff. Yeah. Um, Seth, in that same interview I mentioned earlier, Jenrick also said... And I quote, there are communities in our country that are leading parallel lives. He could give no evidence of this, but used those marching to protest the death of civilians in Palestine as an example of, and I quote, people who do not share British values and an issue that is connected to migration. What do you make of this? Um, I think there's always been a strand of populist conservatism that actually needs to victimize the other and to talk about these sort of people who are a pariah. Um, if it was the 60s, they would be talking about the hippies and the beatniks. If it was the 70s, they'd be talking about lefty academics. In the 80s, they'd be talking about social workers straying too far from their jobs and so on. Um, now, I mean, because there's this obsession with respectability and conformity, yes, um, the current issue of the day is Palestinian protesters. Um, you know, mm. but the, this is the same line of arguments that says, well, we're angry at activist judges. And, you know, you can't get more establishment than judges. So the question then is what sort of respectability, what sort of morality do you actually purport to represent? Yes, it, it strikes me though that this has tinges. This is racialized, yep. right? Yeah. Um, and it, because it seems to me there's no way to connect it to the migration we are talking about in this, in the context of this election, right? These are not people that just crossed the channel yeah. in a dinghy and then joined a march for the rights of Palestinians. So what he's actually saying is he's talking about effectively second generation migra migrants from a Muslim background that, that emigrated here. Um, you know, in the in the 50s, 60s and but 70s. A, but so. a lot of these slurs are racially tinged. A lot of the references to pinko academics are meant to suggest they're really gay. Mm. A lot of these things around the others are sort of meant to suggest, you know, some sort of gypsy ancestry. There's a long, long history of mm. this in conservative sort of victimization on this front. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week who will sweep the Golden Globes and who just has brass balls. Seth. I'm rather improbably going to suggest Penny Mordaunt. Okay. Because as leader of the House of Commons, in charge... Is that of, as a hero? As, as a hero, <laughs> in charge of marshalling legislation. I mean, how impossible a job is this? She must know it's complete nonsense. Yeah. She must know it doesn't make sense administratively or politically or ethically or on any level whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But she's ploughing ahead with it all the same. And I suppose on some level that chutzpah must be admirable. Okay. Um, and what about your villain? I mean, it's got to be MedPro PPE. <laughs> <laughs> but there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, whoever does their marketing is Fine. very good at marketing. Fine. How about you, Roz? My heroes, though, this week are French school children, because, as you may have heard, they will now be allowed to travel to Britain without a passport, just with their ID cards, or if they are haven't got French citizenship, uh, without a visa. And this is great news, because, you know, we I, I love meeting them as they, you know, do, performatively fall over on the tube and block everything within a mile of Trafalgar <laughs> Square and seduce our teenagers. It's great. <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. Performantly um, fall over in the tube. <laughs> have you not that seen seems them? oddly specific. We've <laughs> all been there. Okay. It breaks. They fall over. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. Um, villain is um, the UK Church of the Kingdom of God, and one, one pastor in particular there. I like to live and let live when it comes to other people's beliefs, um, even irrational ones. You know, I go into a church myself occasionally for reasons I can't fully explain. And, uh, but in this instance, uh, there's a BBC expose this week of what is being uh, said and done in these churches, of which there are several branches around the UK. Mm -hmm. And this church tells congregations that it can help with mental health conditions by casting out evil spirits. And most egregiously, in my view, the leader of the church in the UK thinks epilepsy is a spiritual problem. And, uh, you know, as uh, someone with a daughter with epilepsy, I just find that's made me see red. So mm. th these people are my villains of the week. OK, so this is my decision. Um, I think neither of you have made a decent case for Hero of the Week. Well, I'm certainly us. not going to find Penny Mordaunt <laughs> Hero of the Week, uh, nor French school children for falling over performatively, especially <laughs> knowing um, that Ros thinks that you know, with their heroism, there is a, a dose of villainy. So I'm going to find two villains of the week. I think MedPro PP and the United Church of the Kingdom of God both deserve the title villain of the week. So it's a double villain week. We're at the end of module two of the COVID inquiry. All that is left are submissions from council to come in the coming days. The last few weeks especially have been, well, interesting. We've seen most of the box office political figures who were in charge during the pandemic, Johnson and Hancock, for example, as well as the health professionals like Sir Patrick Valence and Sir Chris Whitty. But today, Monday, it was finally the turn of Rishi Sunak to give evidence to the inquiry. Roz, you've been keeping an eye on Sunak's session today. Give us the highlights or lowlights. Well, it wasn't hugely revealing, I have to say. Mm. Um, you perhaps could sum most of it up with a sort of line that goes, there was a Cobra meeting. I was probably at it. Decisions were taken. Um, yes. But not by me. There was a lot of not remembering. Right? There was a lot of not remembering. Um, least convincing, perhaps, was when he said he could not recall whether he argued against lockdown in the winter of 2020, which I wasn't <laughs> sure I entirely believed, particularly given the rest of his evidence when he was you know, saying quite strongly that you know, there were, there were there were reasons why he was disagreeing with lockdown. He was he kept pretty calm. You could see he was occasionally impatient, but he wasn't really very touchy. Sunak, mm. he was uh, pretty much under control. The main. I mean, I thought he had a better morning than he had than he yes, had enough. He got tired. It yeah. sort of it fell apart a little bit in the first hour of the afternoon. Yes, and also the, you know, inevitably the the questions about the second you know second lockdown more and difficult for questions. Yeah, yeah about the, than about the first. 
I mean, he he argued that Treasury's, Treasury's job was to advocate for the economy and often... What did I say to you this morning? Yes, you were absolutely right. <laughs> and that meant pointing out the fiscal impacts of furlough and lockdown. Um, he also added that he personally was worried about the social impacts. Again, that's slightly undermined by... You know the the fact that he didn't uh, didn't didn't uh, have free school meals in the summer until Marcus Rashford made mm. it politically too embarrassing for him to resist. There was a clear belief that Sage had held too much sway over public uh, over public behaviour, basically, and a worry that the stay at home message had worked too well in effect, and that things like you know the example he gave was that construction had stopped here but not in Europe. People were staying at home more than they needed to and more than people in the rest of Europe and that this was a big worry for the Treasury because it would slow down the economy more than was absolutely needed. Mm. So that that was, the, I would say, the gist of his evidence for the day. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. We were more frightened yes. of the virus than anywhere else. Pretty and much. I think that was partly down to the uh, nature of the campaign, which, you know, here was fear. much more yeah. visceral and much more deliberately yeah. scary than yeah. it was in other countries. And there was actually a session with a behavioural uh, um, academics right at the front of Module 2 mm. about three months ago, where it explored exactly this, that they were saying, do not use fear as a motivator. It's the wrong thing to use. Mm. Other things work better. And you can then switch the behavior away from it more easily. And the government was like, let's go and scare the pants out of them. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think the other aspect was that a lot of people, not everyone, a lot of people didn't trust the government. Now, in a crisis like this, people instinctively want to trust the government. You know, this is why you saw a surge in Tory support and in support for Boris Johnson himself. You know, he never had higher ratings than at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. People badly, badly want to trust what the government is telling them. And as time went on, they became less and less trusting. And that meant that if the government was kind of saying that they should go out, then their instinct was to do the opposite for many people. Not everyone, mm -hmm. but for many people, and especially, I think, on the left, who were instinctively more distrustful of, of Johnson. Yes, I remember thinking that yes. uh, occasionally that, yeah. you know, that they, they were giving the wrong advice, essentially. We've heard a lot about the Eat Out to Help Out scheme throughout the latest rounds of the inquiry. Sunak was obviously chancellor at the time. It was his baby. He championed it. How did he defend it today? Well, he said it was basically part of a wider plan uh, that the government had in place to open up gradually and that they believed it could be done without bringing R over one, particularly as during August schools were still off and they regarded schools as the biggest risk that they had, mm. whether rightly or wrongly. Uh, he also said that people who objected to Eat Out to Help Out should have said so at the time. And when challenged about, you know, uh, saying that uh, evidence that said that by Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance and so on, who said they didn't know about it, um, he, you know, he said that they did have had had the opportunity to to uh, object to it and that they didn't. So quite what exactly was going on there, I'm sure, will be elucidated by the end of the in inquiry. Um, he also said, pointed out the huge, you know, the amount of safety guidance that was put in place around Eat Out to help out. Now, the wider question of why an airborne virus was going to be kept in check by putting hand sanitizers on table and disinfecting chairs, which is, you know, one that perhaps has not been fully explored, was not explored today. Uh, you know, there was there were indeed an awful lot of safety measures, but I'm not convinced that many of them actually had any effect mm. on uh, how much the virus spread. With Eat Out to Help Out, it didn't have a major impact on the course of the pandemic. You know, France cases in France rose faster than in, in, in August than they did here. Um, and they went up, cases went up uh, probably a little bit faster than they would have done otherwise, but they were quite low at the time. But economically, and this is the important thing, I think, especially for Sudak, who, you know, the point of the scheme was to get people going out, spending money, yeah? Uh, economically, it wasn't very effective. It was, remember, Monday to Wednesday. Mm. So people just changed their behaviour uh, compared with the previous year, where they would just go out for dinner on, or lunch on Monday to Wednesday, yeah? yeah. And then they didn't go out on the, the other days, uh, which makes absolute sense, of course, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're doing that. Yeah, um, but but it, it, didn't, it didn't prompt a longer-term change in behaviour, at least partly because the Alpha variant came along and cases started rising mm, as more mm, people mm. went back to work in September. So in policy terms, it was a failure. And financially, it was 
not the best use of public money either at this stage yeah. in the in the pandemic. Uh, throwing throwing all this money at this particular scheme was not actually a very targeted way to use it. Controversially, perhaps, I think he was actually quite lucky with Eat Out to help out and that it didn't make things a lot worse. But at the, that doesn't mean to say that it wasn't pretty reckless and badly designed. Yeah, I mean, I think my takeaway from that uh, uh, conversation is that I find it quite extraordinary that he defended it as a purely fiscal measure. Mm. He kept saying, the reason I didn't ask the experts for advice on this, um, the reason I didn't tell the Department of Health, the reason he didn't warn uh, devolved administrations that it was coming, which I find just astonishing that a scheme would be launched that encourages people to go out and, you know, crowd in restaurants in Scotland, and Scotland would find out about it the same time I, Joe, blogs found out about I just find this quite astonishing. And it's sort of unraveled later, because later he did accept it was a behavioural thing. Yeah. And, and that's the answer to your question. It didn't generate money, but that wasn't its point. Its point was to get people out of the habit of not going out, yeah. basically. It was, yeah. Um, and, and I find that really quite troublesome because f- projection models would absolutely have included assumptions of the proportion of people that would take up the ease of unlocking Right. So you would say we're going to relax lockdown in X, Y, Z way. And we think 60 percent of people will take that up and do it. So if if one department does incentives that will actively boost that number to 75 percent, like the health people really do need to know about it. It affects the curve. Even, you know, it affects the assumptions, even if it didn't in practice. That's not the point. And was it, you know, given that if you, you know, you couldn't completely open up, given that, what was the best use of public money? What was the, what were the most useful things you could do that would alleviate some of the worst harms of lockdown? Mm. And I don't think he did do those things. Remember that, you know, kids went back to school in September, but, you know, by July, we were all being encouraged to to eat out, to help out. And the argument Boris Johnson put forward with that was that, oh, people had already booked their holidays and they were ready for a break. I can certainly can tell you in July, in July, I would have been very happy to send my kid back to school for any time <laughs> at all. And uh, I tried to book a holiday in August and um, then, uh, you know, the, um, the government banned me from going abroad uh, to France. So I couldn't. <laughs> it was... I was to come back in August and then I wasn't allowed back. Yeah. So I it's it's it was a very strange choice. And it it's that it was a scheme that appealed to Sunak because Sunak is all about choice and personal autonomy and people you know, and eat out to help out is an exemplar of that. You know, it's not giving kids free school meals uh, when they're poor. It's letting better off people choose how they spend their money. And that, I think, is the real kind of uh, the the thing that betrays, unfortunately, Sunak's claim to be very concerned about the social effects of lockdown and the effects on the poor, which is the argument that he was making. Seth, have we seen anything remotely comparable to this inquiry in the past in terms of size and scope? I mean, the number of years, oh, yes. the number I mean, of the history, money that's going into History it. is full of public inquiries in this country. And bear in mind, that's why it was a running gag in Yes Minister that the government of the day on no account allows a public inquiry yeah. to happen. Um, the most far-reaching that comes to mind that's probably comparable is something like the Iraq inquiry, which Gordon Brown commissioned in 2009. It was very far-reaching. It didn't just look at the Iraq invasion. It looked at the run-up going as far back as 2001, and it went right up to the present day. And that ended up uh, running until 2016. It took seven years Mm. to report, and dozens and dozens of volumes were produced. Um, The problem now is that even in the last decade, the scale of material that they have to sift through has increased uh, Because of electronic communication. Particularly because of WhatsApp and government by WhatsApp. Um, you know, it's an issue that historians talk about all the time, actually, which is what is the easiest period to study in terms of optimal understanding of this by an individual or by a group of people. And it's 
it's a real horror doing anything before, say, the 17th century, because you're using a few scraps of paper and you're filling out the gaps. It's a real horror doing anything from about 1950 onwards, because the sheer scale of what's there is like nothing that any one individual can process by mm, themselves mm, in a reasonable period mm. of time. But you bring that into the modern age, and the teams of researchers that you need, the teams of trained legal minds to actually sift through and understand this, and the number of techies to support them, it's really tough to actually understand material. Maybe this is where AI could actually be useful, right? You'd sort of teach it to find me a shit minister, scan everything, and find me lying bastards. I don't think you need an AI to spot that. Beyond specific personalities, how do you think our politics will come out of this inquiry? Is there a danger that instead of being seen as increased transparency, it just makes people even more likely to distrust anything that government says now that we we got a glimpse at the sort of shit show that was going on in the background. I think the emphasis in that question is on even more likely because we've already had yeah. years, if not decades, of mistrust of politicians. What I would say is don't underestimate the scope for some people to come out well from this inquiry. Mm. And specifically, I'm, I'm thinking of this being quite a useful rejoinder to the Michael Gove point about how we've had enough of experts. No, I think actually we really want to hear the experts here. Where some of these evidence sessions have been really informative are where the experts were disagreeing. And that's what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be comparing evidence and methodologies and approaches and seeing what is the best way forward in public policy. And that's something we haven't seen in our public policy, I'd suggest, in quite a while. Mm. One final question for both of you. How will this change the way Whitehall is run? Will an assumption that, that anything sent in a WhatsApp or spoken in a meeting could end up in someone's diary or, you know, someone sending a message to someone and, and end up part of a public hearing, will that make government more honest or less honest? Um, Seth, what do you think? I think we already have that assumption, but don't underestimate the scope for politicians to mess up all the same. I'm thinking of the parliamentary expenses scandal of 2009. And just for background, that was a, an FOI request from 2004. We didn't know any of the <coughs> claims put in by MPs before 2004, but I know firsthand from working in parliament during that time, every MP knew that their expenses had been FOI'd and that there was a very decent chance that this was all going to end up in the public domain anyway. But during that five-year period, they still made those claims, which all ended up coming out in public. <laughs> so do not underestimate how stupid our politicians can still be. <laughs> what about you, Ros? Do you have a view of this? Uh, my instinct is that we'll make them less honest because when people are worried about being shamed and held to account and, and, and in an inquiry elsewhere, their normal reaction is to self-censor. And mm. so they may well just end up saying things that they don't put on WhatsApps. You know, the pandemic, obviously, because of the nature of the pandemic and the need to avoid uh, as much face-to-face -face contact as possible, led to even more WhatsApps, I think, than you would otherwise mm -hmm. have had. But I'm not sure I see... Yeah, a... so a lot of these things we're seeing might have been quiet little conversations yeah. over the water cooler in, yeah. in, in, in different times. I mean, some people say that the, um, the, 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 real, the way that Tory MPs began to segment themselves into groups like the Northern Research Group and the ERG and so on really began with WhatsApp. Um, and certainly during uh, the pandemic, you saw them using it more and more because, of course, Parliament wasn't sitting <clears throat> for a while at all and then in a normal way. And so everything you know, was done and all the th normal things that would be talked about in the tea room and in, other you know, in, in the mm -hmm. corridors of Parliament went on to WhatsApp. Um, and the effect, of course, ironically of that is to divide people further and polarise them further. And that that is perhaps the most worrying aspect of it, that once you have a WhatsApp group, um, you start to merge your views with the other people in the WhatsApp group. Mm -hmm. um, and you have a degree of groupthink, and that is dangerous. We've 
reached the end of the show. So it's time for escape routes. What are our panel doing and what can they recommend in this final hardest slog just before the holidays um, to take our minds off the bin fire that is Parliament once more? It's almost a seasonal thing now, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, have you written your your the commons are in revolt cards this year. <laughs> Let me start with you, Seth. Uh, I'm going to make a literal escape route. I'm flying off to Spain tomorrow and I'm not coming back until next year. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a recommendation? Just yes. leave this fucking cesspit. Um, how about you, Rose? I'm also going to Spain, but a different part of Spain. Oh and I don't goodness. think our... Uh, but not in the next few days, not till the new Am year. Am I the only person not going to Spain? <laughs> That's just the place to be at the moment. <laughs> but I, I saw... I took my son to see Wonka yesterday. Uh -huh. um, and I'm not sure I'd, I'd wholly recommend it to anyone over the age of like 13, to be honest. Okay. It's it's too close to Matilda in terms of the narrative arc. Um, if you've seen that, you've basically seen Wonka. There's not enough about chocolate and how great chocolate is. Mm. There were too many kind of imaginary weird types of chocolate that don't exist and could never exist. And not enough about the <laughs> sheer pleasure of simple dairy milk chocolate and how great it is. You know, they were just trying to juice up the chocolate the whole time. And you don't need to juice up chocolate. Chocolate's just great by itself. I love how strong your views on this are. <laughs> but um, Hugh Grant was good. He did a good turn. Yes. I mean, I would say I wouldn't recommend anything with Timothy Chalamet to anyone over 13 years old, to be absolutely honest. My recommendation is going to go to the reboot of Frasier. Um, uh, we discussed it some time ago um, after there were a couple of episodes out. I have now watched the whole 10 episodes of the first new series, as it is, um, and they sort of halfway through that process from about episode five on, they really hit their stride and it becomes quite funny, laugh out loud funny and quite delicious. It's certainly not something that has ruined any legacy, which was my uh, my fear. And actually having gone back and rewatched uh, season one of Frasier, really the first few episodes of that are quite clunky because they have a lot of stuff to explain. So if you are a fan of Frasier, I would recommend it very, very highly with this proviso. You have to watch the whole 10 episodes and then come to a view. Um, and that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Seth. Thank you. Thank you, Roz. Thank you. We'll see lots of you on Wednesday at the Comedy Store in London for a live show. If you didn't get tickets, we are streaming it live for all Patreon backers. So just follow the link in the show notes, sign up, and we'll send you the streaming link. And don't forget, last orders for our merchandise at podmarket.co.uk and the Patreon merch store is Wednesday the 13th of December. So don't cut it too fine when you're ordering your Brexity Uncle Ken and ask me about my luxury beliefs t-shirts for Christmas. Thanks for listening to Oh God What Now. We'll see you next time. Oh God What Now was presented by Alex Andreu with Ross Taylor and Seth Tevo. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin and Mike Bollin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Mm -hmm.